Well, by far the most complex part of our bodies is the brain. The brain is a, a wondrous organ. We think of God's power and majesty on display in creation and in the cosmos, and rightly so. But I would argue that God's glory and power are just as much on display in the brain. The human brain consists of roughly 100 billion neurons or brain cells. Each of these neurons is connected to other neurons by about 40,000 synapses, individual connections. A piece of brain tissue the size of a grain of sand contains 100,000 neurons and, and a billion synapses, all talking to each other all the time. As you can imagine, the brain is quite the powerhouse. Literally, it generates about 25 watts of electricity. 400 miles of blood vessels stretch throughout the brain. And although the brain comprises just 2% of our body weight, it consumes 20% of our calories and oxygen. Put together, the brain is, is like a supercomputer in our head, of course. All this is quite interesting, but to me what's even more interesting is to ponder why. Why did God go to such great lengths to create us with these built-in supercomputers? Why not make us with the brain of a stegosaurus, which had a, a brain the size of a walnut? Why do we have the most complex brain on the planet, a brain able to think and reason? You realize physiologically our, our brains are what set us apart from the rest of the animals. We're not merely creatures of instinct, but we can think and reason, and, and ponder, and wonder, and dream, and imagine, and plan. Why is that? Why did God make us like that? Don't you think it has something to do with him? Just think, the other animals have no concept of God, no knowledge of God. They, they don't know God. They can't relate to God. But God made us different. He made us in his image. Why is that? So that we could know him, that we could worship him, that we could reflect him to the rest of this world. It's almost like God gave us these amazing brains capable of so much that we could both give him the glory and showcase his glory throughout the rest of the world. God, after all, doesn't have a brain, but he does have a mind. And so do too we. We, we are like God in this manner. And this also explains God's great concern for our minds in Scripture. He's not so much concerned for our brains per se, although I'm sure he approves of our helmet laws. But the Bible speaks more about our minds, which is to say our thoughts. God is supremely concerned in Scripture with what we think about. He very much cares how we use our minds, which he has given to us. And of course, he wants us to use them for his glory and, and our good. Although you might not think about this, how you think is a spiritual issue. What you think about is a spiritual issue. There is some you know, metaphysical connection between our, our minds and our souls in Scripture. And so it's not surprising to learn in Scripture that your thought life is at times described as part and parcel with your spiritual life. Show me what a person thinks about most often and I'll, I'll tell you how close to God they are. It's also, therefore, not surprising to learn that your spiritual stability and your spiritual growth are largely tied to your, your thoughts, your thinking. We often associate spiritual maturity with actions. And the mature Christian reads the Bible all day and prays and evangelizes. And all that's good. But right living in the Christian life always stems from right thinking. Just learn that lesson early on. Right living 
always stems from right thinking. And that's a lesson we're going to learn from our passage this morning in Philippians chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, or if you want to grab a a pew Bible in front of you, join us in Philippians chapter 4. For weeks we've been talking about how to stand firm in the Lord. Kind of a a how-to series from chapter 4 here. How to stand firm in the Lord. It's one of Paul's main exhortations here in the book of Philippians. And it's certainly something the church needs to hear today. The Apostle Paul, in a helpful manner, shows us what the spiritually stable life looks like. And so much of, of a spiritually stable life intersects your mind, your thinking. You can't have a, a stable life in the Lord, a spiritually firm life, without right thinking. Just take what we learned last week from verses 6 and 7 about fear, anxiety, and worry. These are sins that still plague people today. In fact, I'd say we're probably more anxious today. But these expressions of unbelief, they all live in the mind. That's it. They they take place entirely in the mind. Lies tempt us to doubt something about God. And if you don't correct your thinking about your circumstances, you're going to stumble. You're not going to stand firm. Instead, we're called to fight anxiety in our minds with the truth and by praying, which is an active expression of our faith and trust in God and and his truth. And the result of this is peace and stability. Isn't that what we learned in verses 6 and 7? Look there again where he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And notice at the end, God promises to give us his peace, which guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. These two words the New Testament uses sometimes to refer to our thoughts and emotions. And both matter. God cares what you think, how you feel. And getting your thoughts and feelings right, which aren't unrelated, is paramount to right living. And so God promises to help us as we pray and set our minds on things above. And so it's right on the heels of this teaching that in the very next verse, Paul directs us to a fifth way to stand firm in the Lord. Now in verse 8, we find another admonition to help us stand firm. And this one takes place entirely in the mind. If you haven't been with us, we've learned so far four other ways to stand firm in the Lord. Number one, be harmonious from verses 2 and 3. Number two, be joyful from verse 4. Number three, be gracious from verse 5. And number four, be prayerful from verses 6 and 7. And today we come to add a fifth from verse 8, be thoughtful. To be thoughtful. So let's go ahead and read now the next verse, verse 8. Philippians 4, 8, Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. To start, I want to clarify by what I mean by thoughtful, to be thoughtful, because thoughtful can have a couple of different meanings. 
normally when you think of being thoughtful, you, you probably think of being considerate for someone. Like it's, it's someone's birthday and you remember, so you send them a card. That's very nice. It's very thoughtful. But that's not what we mean here. Rather, being thoughtful can also mean literally just being occupied with thought, being contemplative, being meditative. So be thoughtful, or in other words, be thinking. That's the main command here, after all, at the end of verse 8. After this long list of what to think about, Paul says at the end of verse 8, dwell on these things, a command, dwell on these things. In other words, think about these things, meditate on these things, set your mind on these things. These are things God wants you to consider and evaluate and, and dwell on. Our brains have such an amazing ability to process information, but our brains also prioritize information, and actually a majority of what our brains process is lost forever. If I were to ask you, could you describe for me every single tree you saw on your way to church this morning? Could you do it? Maybe one or two. It's because your brain, you surely saw hundreds of trees on your way in, and your brain processed all that information, but deemed it irrelevant and forgot it. But if I now tasked you to, on your way home, do your best to, to remember every tree on your way home, you'd do a lot better. Why? Because you're being thoughtful. You're being intentional in your thinking. And that's what God wants of us here, spiritually. Not checked out all the time, not adrift, but thoughtful, intentional in your thinking, purposeful in what your mind is dwelling on. Like Paul says at verse 8, dwell on these things. We're to actively and deliberately set our minds on these things. And so this command, it's simple now, dwell on these things, okay? It just prompts two questions. First, what things? What kinds of things should we be setting our minds on? And second, why is this so important? Why exactly does it matter so much what we're thinking about, what we're setting our minds on? The first question is answered in verse 8 itself. Paul gives a long list of things to, to dwell on that we should be dwelling on. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But I want to start off with that second question, why? Why is this so important? Why does it matter so much what you set your mind on? Why does God care all throughout the New Testament that Christians be firm in their thoughts, that they dwell on things above? Why does it matter so much? This is way more important than you might realize, so I want to spend some time. That's why we're only looking at one verse. Spend some time exploring this question, showing you why it matters so much what you think about. I'll give you a little biblical framework for understanding the mind. First, you have to realize that after the fall, our minds are damaged. We're not brain damaged per se, but spiritually speaking, our minds are fallen. What does that really mean? Let me give you some verses that describe our, our minds before salvation. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. For those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. To the unbelieving, to those who don't know God, who remain in their fallen state, their minds are defiled, corrupt, polluted. In the ancient world, they used pottery for many things, as you know, for cooking, for water, for storage, and for waste. 
didn't necessarily have plumbing, so some pots were designated for bathroom use. And one thing they would never do, as I'm sure you're not surprised, is to reuse the bathroom pottery for drinking pottery. For obvious reasons. It's defiled. It's corrupt. It's polluted. Only fit for waste. And that's what this verse is describing the unbelieving mind like. Defiled, corrupt, polluted. Just like those defiled pots, nothing good comes out of it anymore. It's filled with spiritual filth. And that's what our minds are described like before salvation, defiled. And not only defiled, depraved. That's what Paul says over in Romans 1 of, of those who are lost and in rebellion. Romans 1.28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. God has given over mankind in his rebellion to a depraved mind, to do the things which are not proper, reaping what he sows. Depraved, of course, means given over to evil. Realize God gave mankind this gift of of a mind, a beautiful mind, capable of doing so much, yet man in his rebellion has squandered this gift and used it for evil. You think of the the broke drug addict who inherits $10,000. This is his chance to to turn his life around, get a fresh start, but then he squanders it all on more drugs. And we likewise, we've taken this mind, this gift, and squandered it on depravity, on ourselves. Also, Colossians 1.21, it says, You were formerly alienated and hostile, in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Your mind was defiled, depraved, and now hostile to God. And because of this, you were engaged in evil deeds and alienated from God. And so it goes for all people before salvation. Our minds were empty, empty of anything good, that is. One more, Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 says, walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Gentiles here is just another reference to non-believers. And how are they described? He says, as those walking in the futility of their mind. This word refers to vanity or emptiness, you could say they're like airheads, spiritually speaking. Now, those who reject Christ, they can be, of course, brilliant doctors, lawyers, scientists, authors, of course. But the point he's making is when it comes to spiritual knowledge, the knowledge of God and his righteousness, their minds are empty, futile, filled with nothing but ignorance. They're darkened in their understanding, callous to the things of God, and because of this, excluded from the life of God, and so were we once. Again, this describes all of us before Christ. This was the state of our mind, according to Scripture, defiled, depraved, hostile, futile. And to put it all together, mixing metaphors a bit, we were spiritually blind. The eyes of our mind were blind before Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a a natural man does not accept 
the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. He cannot understand them for their spiritually appraised. He doesn't even have the ability to grasp because he's dead. These verses, they don't mean that unbelievers are, are dumb. It doesn't mean they can't read the Bible and learn the Bible. But it does mean that unbelievers, apart from God, are spiritually brain dead. They cannot discern and apply spiritual truth to their lives. They can't grasp the spiritual significance of the Bible and glorify God through it. Before salvation, you were like a blind person in an art gallery or a deaf person at a symphony, unable to discern that the splendor and the glory of God and the world around you and in Scripture. The eyes of your mind were plucked out and you were left blind and helpless like Samson. So you start with this, the picture of our minds before salvation, and it sounds like a pretty big problem, like some significant spiritual brain damage, you could, you could call it. Spiritually speaking, before salvation, our minds, this most magnificent gift given to enable us to know God and to serve him, to worship him, we turn and use instead to spite God, scorn God, reject God, and we used our minds to serve self and promote evil. And the result was lives filled with wickedness. So this is bad news. This is a problem. Before salvation, our minds were dead. And clearly, if we are to be saved, if we are to be reconciled to God, something has to be done about the state of our minds. Our minds need to be changed. Thankfully, this is one of the things God promises to do for us when we come to Christ. God knows we are blind and lost and helpless and understanding. But by his grace, through the finished work of Christ, his son, God saves us. And in that salvation, he also changes us. Not a small change. The Bible calls it new birth. You're born again as you come to Christ by faith. God brings us to new life in Christ and makes us new. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So coming to Christ by faith and repentance, God makes us new, makes us born again, what does that really look like, though? How do we really change? What's really new about us? Well, according to Scripture, before our ears were deaf, now they can hear, spiritually speaking. Before our eyes were blind, now they can see. Before our heart was stone, now it's flesh. Before our will was enslaved, now it's free. And before our mind was dumb, but now it can understand. Among many other things, salvation involves a transformation of the mind. We used to have a mind of flesh, unable to know the things of the Spirit of God. But after, 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, we are given the mind of Christ. We're given the mind of Christ. And that enables us to see things clearly. We can finally behold Truth, spiritual truth, God and his ways. We're given spiritual vision to see the truth. 
realize before salvation, you and I, we had a wrong view of God. And you believed that his ways were wrong. You loved your sin. You hated God's righteousness. It was burdensome. But I hope you can attest that in coming to Christ, it's like the blinders came off and you see God's ways and you realize, like, wait a second, his ways are best. I love God's ways now. And you see God himself and you realize that God is, he's, he's good. And not just good, he's, he's glorious. Worth your entire life. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. It says, speaking of Satan, it says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. It's a serious verse that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the gospel and believe. That's his work. Thankfully, God does a greater work. Verse 6 says, But God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What he's saying here is basically that the same God who spoke all things into existence, even light from darkness, he uses that same power to speak new life into us. And he opens up our minds to the true knowledge of God in the face of Christ. Meaning not only in salvation do we come to behold God for who he is, we also come to behold Christ for who he is. In addition to seeing God rightly, we see Christ rightly. We see Christ not as some lunatic or as some liar, but as Lord, truly Lord. We're able to see our own sin and the penalty it brings, but then we're able to see what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross dying to pay the full penalty of our sins, offering us forgiveness by faith. And now, with our new minds, that offer, the offer of salvation, it becomes a no-brainer. Like, who, who wouldn't do that if you have a new mind? And so now we happily cast down our sin and run to Christ by faith, confessing him as Lord and Savior that we might be saved. This is part of the wonder of salvation where God, among many other things, changes our minds, drawing us to him by opening us up to the true knowledge of God and Christ. He enables us now with new minds to believe, confess, worship, and praise. Now, this isn't quite the end of the discussion, though. We're given new minds, yes, but they're not fully developed minds. We are born again, yes, but we start off like spiritual infants in our thinking. And such are new minds, they're they're still weak, immature, undeveloped, and so we must mature. This now explains why a large part of the Christian life is described in the New Testament under the terms of, of what? Renewing your mind. Renewing your mind. Thought we have a new mind. We do. It needs to grow, so you must renew your mind. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
God's work of, of transformation in our lives at salvation. It's like taking a bad tree, making it a good tree. That's what he did for us. We were bad trees, now we're good trees. But now we're, we start off in, in sapling form. We're a good tree, but we're a sapling. And so if we're going to bear fruit, we've got to grow. We have to grow up into a mature tree. And one of the main ways we grow is by renewing our minds. We still have some baggage from our old selves. The sinful flesh still remains, actually, prompting us with sinful thoughts. So we must be renewed in mind, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, you put on the new self, all the while being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Ephesians 4, 23. And so now this, this helps you understand a key theme to the Christian life in the New Testament. Renewing the mind. Renewing the mind. Your mind was messed up by sin. And honestly, the longer you lived before salvation, the more damage was done to your mind. And it's going to take some work to renew it and to transform it into a mind that's totally devoted to the Lord. That's totally being used for what God intended it to be used for, to serve him, to serve others. You and I have a lot of old, bad thoughts floating around. Our sinful flesh, like we said, still exists, prompting us with sinful thoughts and desires. But now we must engage in renewing the mind. Just as wrong thinking leads to wrong living, well, right thinking leads to, leads to right living. And so as we renew our minds by the truth, so we will walk in the truth. And with this, we can get back to Philippians 4.8. All of this was like a, an extended detour, answering the question, why does this verse matter? This is a verse, I bet, you read through, you skim through, you think nothing of it. But this verse and those like it in Scripture, you're supposed to stop and think and understand what's being said. Why does this matter so much? Why does God care so much about our thoughts? And we've learned because it's, it's such a vital aspect of our spiritual growth, our new lives in Christ. We've been given not only minds, but now new minds. And lest we squander that gift, we must engage in renewing and growing these minds. So often throughout Scripture, we find the battle against sin is often fought and won in the mind. And so you really have little hope of growing in godliness if your mind is still in the gutter like it once was. You must renew your mind instead according to the God, God's truth for right thinking leads to right living, which in turn leads to true worship. And this now really sets up that second question we had. If our thoughts are so important to God, if he cares so much that we dwell on the right things, that we set our minds on the right things, if this is such a huge aspect of our growth in spiritual lives, then what should we be thinking about? What should we be filling our minds with? And this is what Philippians 4a is all about. This is answered directly in the text. So let's return back to verse 8. Read it again. He says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, 
whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. I'd say it about it was about 10 years ago that the high school pastor at my previous church preached on this verse. And you know how pastors, they try and come up with catchy acronyms to help you remember like an outline? He did the exact opposite. And he came up with the least catchy acronym I've ever heard to help you mem- remember this verse. And it's so weird, it's stuck with me ever since. <laughs> so if you want to remember Philippians 4.8, just remember Thurple Goop. <laughs> Thurple Goop. It's not a real word, but it's pretty awesome in my opinion. Thurple Goop. I continue to be amazed how this ridiculous acronym has helped me remember this verse. I can't get it out of my mind. It's not even that creative. It just stands for true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, excellent, worthy of praise. You can put it together yourself now. But maybe it'll help you remember what you should be setting your mind on 10 years from now. You'll remember Thurple Goop in your mind. It'll pop back in and help you dwell on the right things. But nonetheless, let's just spend a little time now and and explore this list of what we should be setting our mind on. First, he says, whatever is true. Spiritual instability is always rooted in lies, deception, some error or falsehood has crept into your mind. And so it's no wonder that spiritual stability is always rooted in the truth. As we've been saying for weeks, if you want to no longer be tossed here and there by the errors of deception and doubt, you have to fill your mind with the truth. Let scripture define for you right and wrong, truth and error. And as you fill your mind with the truth, God sanctifies you, just like Christ himself prayed. Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. So let the truth of God's word fill your mind always. Next, dwell on whatever is honorable. This means whatever is honest, worthy, noble. Do not fill your mind with cheap, worthless thoughts. Your mind is like a computer in the sense it only has so much RAM, so there's only so much you can be spending your your mind on at at one time, dwelling on it at one time. And the point is that that brain power, that brain time is precious. Don't waste it. Don't waste it on that which is dishonorable. And so just ask yourself, if you perhaps find yourself spending countless hours surfing the internet, online, looking at this or that, just ask, are you filling your mind with what is honorable or not? Let this guide you. After honorable comes what is right. Having been made righteous by God, believers should think righteous thoughts. Your mind's wanderings should reflect God's moral standard. As a result of the transformation God brings about in our minds at salvation, if you're saved, you should come to now love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. And that should be reflected in your thought life. So you want a a simple rule of thumb to guide your thoughts. And this applies to what you read, what you watch on TV, what you listen to. According to scripture, does God love or hate what you're dwelling on? I know we're all works in progress, and I was once immature myself, but more Christians need to realize, for example, that Scripture is crystal clear. God hates all sexual immorality. 
And so if you find that you've got a favorite TV show that features a lot of sexual morality, you just have to ask yourself, is this helping you dwell on that which is right or not? Similarly, next, you should dwell on whatever is pure. Most likely, Paul is referring to moral purity here, a.k.a. being chaste. Christ is righteous. Christ is pure. And when he returns, he wants his church to be righteous and pure. Christ wants his bride, the church, wearing white when he returns. Jesus himself told us that lust was akin to the sin of adultery in your mind. So you cannot harbor lust in your mind and worship God at the same time. Like Job, you must make a covenant with your eyes to not gaze with lust. So instead, dwell on whatever is pure. In addition, we're to dwell on whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. He says next, lovely means that which is pleasing, agreeable. Being of good repute means that which is praiseworthy, attractive. These things should occupy your thoughts. So just just stop and ask, what does God consider lovely? What does God consider attractive? How about, for example, although there are many, heaven? Remember what we learned not long ago back in Philippians 3. I mean, just look back there. Verse 19, how are the lost described? 3.19. He says, of them whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. Their minds are consumed with earthly things, which is to say the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. But by way of contrast, how are true believers described? Verse 20, he mentions we are citizens of heaven. In Christ, we've been made citizens of heaven. So don't you think that should correspond to setting our minds not on earthly things, but on heavenly things? And so it's no wonder we're told over in Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. Can't be any clearer. Set your mind on things above. Our inheritance is in heaven. Our home is in heaven. Our Savior is in heaven. So our thoughts should be in heaven as well. Finally, to finish the list, Paul says, dwell on that which is excellent and that which is worthy of praise. Excellence here refers to moral excellence or virtue. Our minds should be filled with thoughts of virtue, thoughts that are worthy of praise and not condemnation. So here's another good question to ask yourself. If someone could read your mind, would you be condemned for what you're thinking or praised? for what you're thinking. And realize, God can read your mind. God knows what you're thinking. And what you do is, or rather what you think, is often just as important as what you do. God knows what you're dwelling on, and just knowing this, desiring to be pleasing to him in all respects, dwell on that which is excellent and worthy of praise. Well, this is a a short but helpful list of what we should be setting our minds on. <clears throat> and I have to say, it's not surprising. Nothing in this verse surprises us as to what we should be dwelling on. 
This list merely reflects the things of God. God wants us to be consumed with his truth, his ways, his person. Every single quality in this list actually can be said of God. You realize that? I mean, look at the list. God is true. God is honorable. God is righteous. God is pure. God is lovely. God is of good repute. God is excellent. God is worthy of praise. He just wants you to be using your new minds for him, to know him, to enjoy him, to serve him, to worship him, and so forth. Now, I trust you're not surprised by this, but are you convicted by this? Are you renewing your minds daily? And if not, be convicted and discipline yourself to change. Discipline your thoughts. So often we think of discipline as being physical. You've got to discipline yourself to, to stop smoking or stop drinking or stop that bad habit. But the greater battle often is to discipline your thoughts to have discipline over your own thoughts, self-control over your own thoughts, where you are controlling your thoughts and your thoughts are not controlling you. How do you do that? That's a real challenge because we still have the sinful flesh and it's pumping out sinful thoughts all the time and you can't always get rid of those thoughts. The flesh remains, but you can overcome them. You can replace them. And you do that by dwelling on these things. If you want to win the battle of your thoughts, you have to discipline yourself to intentionally and purposefully dwell on these things. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You dwell on these things by letting the truth of God dwell in you. So this looks like inundating your mind with scripture reading, meditation, memorization, sermons, Christian books, Christian media, prayer, edifying conversations, and so forth. You need to saturate your mind with the truth to combat and replace all those errors. Again, right or wrong thinking leads to right or wrong living. So this really works both ways. If you instead fill your mind with garbage 24-7, Well, is it any wonder you're struggling in the Christian life, if that's you? A point I made some weeks ago bears repeating. If you were to add up all the worldly media you consume in a week, what would it be? 10 hours, 20 hours, maybe more. Now, if you were to add up all the the godly input you get, what would it be? One hour, two hours, some of you, zero So just by quantity, by volume, what are you dwelling on? What are you setting your mind on? If that's you, you're you're setting your mind on earthly things. And just, we have to face it, we know the vast majority of our media today is not promoting godliness, not representing godliness. And so as your mind is filled with this stuff, is it any wonder you might be struggling with worldliness and more and more worldly thoughts and then worldly actions? and so forth. If you lose this war of influence over your mind, you won't do well. The mind is so powerful, but it needs direction, guidance, godly input. We've been given this great gift, a second great gift, a new mind called to use it now for true good of serving God, serving others. 
we can know God with our new mind and praise God, see him, serve him and others, but only if our minds are set on him. So take some real practical steps in changing your thought life, and you do this by changing your inputs. Dedicate real time, quantity time, to dwelling on these things. Set your mind on things above, and all throughout the day, you will see spiritual stability result. Like a good tree, you'll be sending down good roots, stable. Nothing will topple you over, and you will bear much fruit for God. And in all this, God is glorified, and the blessing is yours. You are blessed. Just like the first psalm says, someone, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Let us be these good trees with minds set on things above. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are grateful for this time, this convicting time for all of us, about our, our thoughts, Lord. You, you care so much about our minds. You made us in your image, and one major aspect of that is our minds, our inner man, able to think and reason, ponder and, and imagine. Such an amazing gift we have. Yeah, we confess, Lord, in our own past and, and still. So easily our minds can be used for evil, to promote that which is not good. We can squander this gift and use it even to, to scorn you. We really give thanks, Lord, for, for Christ, the Savior, who died for us on the cross and rose from the dead to offer us new life. And we thank you, Lord, that in giving us this new life, you also give us new minds to behold this offer, to behold the, the beauty of Christ, and to believe. And I pray now, Lord, that we can be convicted to, to engage in renewing these new minds. We need to grow. Our minds need to mature. This is a lifelong effort and race we're in. So help us, help us to, to learn this lesson well and to, to let it stick with us. We, we need to be diligent, our part, in, in controlling our minds. And we do that so much by controlling what we allow into our minds. Help us to win that war, Lord, uh, and to, to fill our, our minds with the truth, the truth of Scripture, the truth of God and Christ, that we can behold your glory in the face of Christ. And that's how you conform us more into Christ's image. We're sanctified in the truth. And we confess your word is truth, Lord. So keep us and build us up in the truth. May we set our minds on, on you, on things above. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.